0: Blog Talk Radio. You want to replay the point? Okay. Mr. Mavrinka wants to replay the point. Fifteen on.
1: play The Point. Today is September 3rd, 2017. Pete Zebron of Tennis Acumen, joined by Karen Helf of Tennis View Magazine. Good evening, Karen.
0: Hi, Pete. Greetings from San Diego.
1: Absolutely, and uh, you and I had a chance to spend nine days at the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, and obviously we got the U.S. Open in uh, the beginning of week two right now, but we're going to touch base a little bit about some of our observations, and uh what we had to, uh, what we saw in Cincy, and what we experienced, and we're going to kick that off uh, first and foremost, Karen, with the outstanding WTA roundtable. Something that I think is the, the best part of the Western and Southern Open, and, and really any event uh, that that goes on right now. But uh, we we had a chance to talk with six of the top eight seeds in Cincy, and um, just want to get your thoughts on what you what your biggest takeaways were from the roundtable.
0: Uh, well, I would agree with you that it's an exceptional opportunity to sit down with the players in a more relaxed environment. And I think one where they're a little more, I guess, freed up, uh, for me, and this is not just the round table, but throughout all of her pressers, uh, Muguruza, she just seems to have what I'll call a quiet confidence and mm-hmm. You know, she's kind of been maybe one of those people that people see as quirky, but I think she's very comfortable with herself and just seemed to be um freer than I've seen her. You know, I'm of course seen every press conference but the ones that I've been in and had a chance to see previously. Um and then I would say Svetlana Kuznetsova, I mean she <laughs> I think mean, you know, she she kinda owned the round table, I think, and and you know, showing her experience certainly not only was uh, interesting, delightful as a personality, entertaining, uh, open, funny, as you know. I mean, she really stood out yeah. to me quite a bit as well. So, but really, yeah, all I, players. it was very enjoyable.
1: Yeah, going back to Muguru, who ended up winning Cincinnati, Karen, um, actually is my question. I, I was intrigued. Obviously, the second major that she won was earlier this year in Wimbledon, and I just wanted to get a feel for, you know, someone who won Wimbledon for the first time, what it meant for them. And I was intrigued by the fact that Garby had said that, uh, you know, she elaborated the fact that the French Open, it was more for Spain, more of that that part of the world, if you will. But as she said in her own words, winning Wimbledon opened her up more to the English world. And I I think that really rang true, uh, not only in England, Britain, but uh, the United States, India, the English world, if you will. All of a sudden, Garbi Muguruza is is a household name in, in the WTA.
0: Agreed. And, you know, you made me realize I asked her a question the year prior right after she won and asked her about going to New York and being more of a recognizable name now in the United States because of that. And she really didn't seem to handle or or like that question very much, actually. And, you know, I think maybe that was part of it is just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a good player. I want to be known for my good tennis and everything, but I think. Over the period of that year, realizing, you know, there is that progression. And I think what you said about, you know, getting into the English world and American world in terms of um, that exposure is definitely something that takes some time and some adjustment, you know, huge markets in both places.
1: No, absolutely. She she had a loss today uh, against Kvitova. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, just sticking with the roundtable, and, and Karen, I've had a chance to attend several of these in Cincinnati, and I think I shared with you that the most cerebral people I've ever encountered at these WTA round roundtables are uh, not in any order, but uh, Vera Zvonareva, Marian Bartoli, maria sharapova but i'm adding to that list this year and that is svetlana kuznetsova who i i again last year she was a, a charm to be with but this year really i i was really happy with what a lot she had to say she really dug deep with respect to her answers i love the fact that the wta handlers let her just go on and on and this was sort of an extended session we had with Svetta, but um any any of uh, your favorite takeaways that you had from Svetlana Kuznetsova from the roundtable?
0: Well, I think we've been quoting it. You know, she, I think she said four or five times "never say never" on mm-hmm. topics from whether she'd win another major to would she ever run for public office. You know, and I think it was Jamie right. that asked that question. So, you know, I, I think she's. Um, Know she's just one of those people that I think is just enjoying everything right now, is really appreciative of everything right now, has um is living with the benefit of the things she's learned and the experience that she has. Not everybody does that, not everybody learns from you know the good things that happen and the bad things that happen, and how to take the diamonds out of the times that are rough. Mm-hmm. and make something good out of it and I mean I think that just seems to come through in everything that she talked about not one particular topic
1: that's a good point and um shifting gears a little bit someone who's not had a great 2017 either, even though she's been number one in the world for the majority of it Karen uh Angelique Kerber all kinds of struggles this year has not had a great year but uh very open nonetheless and uh, I know that one of the answers she gave in her WTA roundtable you were able to use that answer and ask other players questions and the fact that she's been able to learn how to say no to things once she's been world number one obviously the the ascent to number one uh, it's a new experience people want a piece of you they want you to do this appear here and it's all new and exciting and sure, you're you're blown away by it. You want to make yourself accessible, but too much can be too much. Angie Kerber has been number one for most of 2017. But uh, I believe it was your question. Uh, I forgot what the question was exactly, but she she explained that she said, no, I learned how to say no, and that's made me more grounded.
0: Right, and, and in particular she said, I need to say no to be able to take care of myself. Hmm. So that was an interesting Add on to that, I think, you know, showing there's that growth factor of living in that space, maybe getting bowled over and overwhelmed by all the opportunities coming to you. I could see her wanting to be a people pleaser and wanting to tell people yes, and maybe struggling with saying no, too. You know, some people have personalities like that. I can relate. Um, and it's certainly a lesson to learn in life because you you know, especially in what she does, an elite athlete, you have to prioritize your performance first. And I can only imagine, because I've never experienced anything like it, that everyone coming after you, you know, after winning that kind of slam, especially in New York, you know, such a big year. um, I can't imagine what that tidal wave must be like. And if you don't have... And I'm not saying she doesn't, but if you don't have great advice, if you are just accepting everything that comes your way, it's got to be mm-hmm. very challenging.
1: For sure. No, completely agreed. New experience for her. She had a monster back end of the year last year. Obviously got to a lot of finals, didn't necessarily win all of them, but won enough to be world number one and cemented her place uh, for the majority of this year. But uh, that's all changed now, and we'll see how she's able to rebound. And someone who's been knocking at the door of world number one for a while this year, Karen Simona Holup, had another opportunity to get there in Cincinnati. It didn't happen, just as she had that chance in Canada and as well before, but um, just got destroyed in the final and, um, you know, was joking about uh, It was brought up, unfortunately, several times in press, she was only five points away. I think that question was asked four different times of her leading mm-hmm. into her final, and um, I thought that was a bit unfair. Uh, she did not win that final, got knocked out very early in the U.S. Open. I don't think she'll have a chance to get to world number one until maybe the fall, but um, your your takeaway from Simona Halep and her Cincinnati run to the final?
0: Well, obviously the final isn't what she would have wanted it to be, but you know, Simone is another one of those players that has been in the later rounds of several events this year, you know, knocking on the number one door. That's not the parrot that you want, but it's still an accomplishment to be in that space. Uh, I, I liked listening to, I'm trying to remember. I can't recall which, which pressure it was, but she talked about, Sometimes I can't do the things that Darren tells me to do out there and kind of acknowledge that it's definitely a mental struggle for her and it's something that, you know, she needs to work on. And I think we've all seen the times where, you know, she'll struggle with getting down, slapping the thigh, you know, starting to see some of that what I'll call on-court frustration manifesting. And, you know, learning to deal with that. And I can only imagine to be in a position of winning a 1,000 or, sorry, a premier event for the women, possibly being number one, you know, being in positions this year where she's had big opportunities. Um, Maybe this is Simona's year to learn really how to deal with frustration and pressure Mm -hmm. and, you know, and come across to the other side. I don't know. Um, But she's a great fighter. She's a great player. She's fun to watch. She has amazing crowd support. Um, Great for the tour, I think. Got, let's face it, one of the craziest, most challenging draws probably coming into the Mm -hmm. U.S. Open. Who gets Maria Sharapova first round? Um, We all know coming to another event, even if you've Played Well on a prior surface at a prior location it's not the same the balls play differently the place plays differently to walk into Arthur Ashe Stadium for your first match you know and and have to perform out there and obviously Maria did so I'm not suggesting it's not possible but you know that's a lot and I also think this was a match where Maria had nothing to lose and Simona had everything to lose so all the pressure on her shoulders.
1: No, I agree. I, bad matchup, too. I saw them play three years ago, in since he, It was, uh, uh, Simona's head-to-head against Maria is just not that great, but I like what you said, Karen, that uh, maybe she's just taking yet another step. It's going to take a little bit longer, and, you know, we look at the men's side, and, and these guys are playing the best tennis of their careers in their 30s, in their mid-30s, in their late 30s, uh, and um, yet at the same point in time, we look at the women's game, and we want it to happen now, and we're not really understanding why and how it's not happening. But yet, if we look across to the ATP tour, it has taken a little bit longer for some of these guys to finally get there. So, absolutely, uh, Simone Olive, it could very well happen uh, a couple months from now, so we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, switching to the current world number one, Karolina Pliskova. Karen, unfortunately, you know, with all the rain that we had in Cincinnati last year, it rained every day except for the final there were no rained-out mm-hmm. sessions. This year we had uh, a lot of rain at one period of time, and uh, you and I were both in that press box for a long time And uh, before they finally called that night's session. But uh, one night of rain, and we had a rained-out session. And unfortunately, that wreaked havoc, uh, most notably on the world number one and defending champion Carolina Pliskova, who was forced to play two matches in one day, which she she won both of those, but the next day, Tongue was on the ground, didn't really have a lot left, and uh, unfortunately for her, she was not able to defend uh, a title that she wanted.
0: For sure, you know this this was her first WTA title, I believe, Cincinnati the prior year. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you know that's kind of. Uh, I, I sat in Eastbourne this year, and I watched the schedule stack up and I watch players scheduled to play three matches in one day. Um, it's not great. Is it fair if you want to just put it on a scale? No. Uh, does it happen? Does it happen to somebody probably at some point in their career at any time? Yes. <laughs> uh, is there some luck to the way the draw gets picked or pulled? Yes. Yep. You know, So these are all variables that we have to deal with. Um, I shouldn't say we, but the players have to deal with. Um, I think it is a little bit unfortunate, but at the same time, you know, (laughs) she's still in the draw in New York and now, you know, Garbini is out and, uh, I don't know what would be a bigger, you know, a, a bigger accomplishment for her this year to get another premier title or possibly walk away with a slam. So, um... Sometimes things happen and it's a blessing in disguise. I'm sure at the moment in Cincinnati, she didn't think so, but we'll see what happens in a couple of days and maybe getting a couple days rest and transition to New York is a helpful thing at the U.S. Open.
1: Well, good call and something that we've incorporated in the show uh, from, from your time in Stanford, uh, Karen favorite matches. I'm going to lead off with this. And uh, again, I was there from first ball of qualifying on Saturday and um, my favorite, two of my favorite matches. Uh, one was the second day of qualifying when Alexandra Krunic of Serbia took on Francesca Schiavoni, and uh, she beat her wonderful match on played on grandstand. And uh, Krunic, that was the first of two consecutive matches where Krunic beat a grand, uh, a Roland Garros champion. First Francesca Schiavoni, and then beat Yelena uh, Ostapenko in the next round. And uh, Krunic played exceptionally well. We saw she had a very nice run at the U.S. Open as well. Another nice match that I saw on, out on court 11, overflow crowd, Camilla Georgie took on Daria Gavrilova. Georgie came through qualifying, did take out Gavrilova in three, uh, won a couple more matches, and um, Gavrilova, Karen, won the title in New Haven before crashing out in the second round of the U.S. Open. Georgie out in the first round of the U.S. Open, but... Alessandra Krunich, really, you know, someone who's a short individual, really brought it, if you will, uh, against Ostapenko. Uh, and since he, again, taking out Schiavone and Ostapenko, and then Camilla Giorgi just hits all out. I was sitting right next to Gavrilova's box, and Gavrilova looked over at them and just said, she, she's just crushing the ball, and um you know, anybody who was around there just nodded their head saying, uh huh, yeah, we get it. Good luck out there. And uh, Camilla Georgie got the job done. But um, those are my two favorite matches, uh, ironically, of the whole tournament, both on the WTA side. What were yours? Uh,
0: WTA, and sorry to say this, Angie, but I kind of want to say Makarova Kerber. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: yep. You know, that was a tremendous match. Yeah. Ended with a tremendous tie break. Makarova was cramping and found some ways to make herself pull through it. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was certainly matched with a lot of momentum shifts, but I think Makarova showed a lot of heart. And I think she's also one of those players that's been around a long time. People that follow more than just the slams know of her, but she's certainly an accomplished player in terms of her potential to bring a very solid game out on any particular day. Uh, she, you know, she hasn't had the big titles and necessarily the same level of exposure, but very solid, uh, wonderful press conference. I mean, even after that match, you know, <laughs> she was pleasant. She wasn't giving us the like, why are you asking me questions? I just want to get out of here. I mean, you know, it, it was a great presser. Um, you know, she was not lamenting, her position, basically, I got to go do what I got to do, try to recover, and going to go out there and try to do my best, you know. Uh, so that was one of my favorites. I'm kind of running out, you know. And then Kuznetsova was going to come up again um, when she played Garbine and, and lost in three sets. But that was one, again, where the momentum shifted. Garbine took the first set. Kuznetsova fought back in the second. and went 7-5 her way, and then the third set was a 7-5. And Svetlana certainly did have her opportunities in that third set, but that was really where you saw that Muguruza was just uh, so focused and I'm going to say quietly confident or self-assured. She just seems, you know more calm and just focused than I had seen her mm-hmm. consistently throughout the week. So that one I really enjoyed, too. I mean, there were a number of others. I got to see a little bit of Kayla Day playing on an outer court. That was a fun match. Um, I do have to also flip to the the men. I mean, I have to say probably Ferrer Curios was mm. one of my favorites, but also Team Fanini on the grandstand. Yep. I mean, that was yep. a true... I think we were together that much. That was true yeah. just in terms of Uh, The the powerful shots on that and the dynamics of of that match. And, of course, Dominic's still in the draw uh, at the U.S. Open as well. So, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see how he progresses, given that, you know, he didn't quite make it as far as he wanted to in Cincinnati. But then again, life and tennis sometimes requires balance. And maybe the balance is that, you know, you end up out somewhere else, but then it helps you open up an opportunity at the next place. No, I agree that
1: Makarova tiebreaker I was uh, I was, I happened to be in the press box just uh, refreshing after being out on the grounds most of the time and uh, caught all of that tiebreaker on, on the big screen if you will but uh, wanted to be out there and anybody who was there including you that, that happened to be their favorite uh, match of the WTA side from Cincinnati so wonderful match uh, for Makarova to get the job done there and Karen before we switch over to ATP anything else from Cincinnati really quickly uh, on the WTA side.
0: Uh, Not really offhand on WTA, just a great event. Again, uh, American viewers, if you get a Mm -hmm. chance, you and I both know. Oh, yeah. uh, It's a great place to come watch tennis and a very, very friendly sort of country fair-like atmosphere. Uh, It's definitely – every tournament has its personality, and, you know, where New York has flash, I think Cincinnati has friendly at a level that, that is at the top, <laughs> for sure.
1: I, I agree. You know, earlier this morning, and again, today's order of play, let's admit, wasn't all that great for, uh, you know, a Sunday on U.S. Open standards. But uh, I was looking on StubHub, and the, the least expensive ticket was 320 bucks, And I just shook my head thinking, you know, a couple of weeks prior, someone can have a similar, very comparable experience for a very small fraction of that uh, without, uh, you know, a lot of the headaches, if you will, that New York provides uh, in Cincinnati. And just as you and I both know, Western Southern Open is is top shelf. So um, that said, we're going to shift over to the ATP side, Karen, and um, – Going to talk about a couple of the finalists first of all, Nick curios, Grigor dimitrov um I had the pleasure of watching each and every one of the points that Nick curios played in Cincinnati, uh starting off with his uh match against David Goffin, where he nearly did and probably should have retired, but fought on, soldiered on, and that was in the first round, got all the way to the final uh had some opportunities against. Grigor Dimitrov, a uh, couple break points midway through the first set, didn't convert them, and uh, Grigor was just too good on that day, but I'll tell you what, um, very impressed with Nick Kyrgios, with the fight he provided, and uh, a lot of people want to take shots at him all along uh, with respect to him and his out- off-court antics, his quitting, he had self-admitted in presser that he tanks matches, but um didn't see any of that in Cincinnati, and uh, just want to get your impression of what you were able to see from Nickyrius in Cincy.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I was happy. I wasn't happy to see him hurting. I was also at that same first match against GoFans, sitting right against the uh, the fence practically. And at one point, he came over, like clawed his hands on the, wincing in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, had the trainer out, I believe, and I was thinking. You know, he's he's going to walk over. Both of those players were wounded warriors. uh, appear to be. I mean, Gofan as well as had his own recovery. But you know, from Nick's point of view, yeah, he fought through that. Uh, He's been in pressers too, kind of downplaying. And I think maybe for both press, but also maybe for his own mental state of, you know, there are worse things than tripping and falling on a
1: on a court,
0: and you know, I'll, I'll get through this. So. There's some interesting talk coming out of him that I think is very positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll also mention, you know, he's one of those players. We've had an awful lot of losses this year. And in fact, Simona Halp is one of them. She also lost her grandfather right around the time of the yep. Wells. Nick Curis also lost his grandfather and did reflect a little bit on that. You know, and I think, you know, we forget that players are people. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. It's almost like, yeah, they're professional athletes. And I'm not saying all athletes don't have this, but I think because tennis is, you know, that individual sport primarily, you know, you don't have a team focus. You have all eyes on that one player, the press conference, all that one player, all the news about one player, you know, (laughs) everyone has personal tragedies and loss and grief, is one of the hardest things in life to deal with. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying players need to talk a whole lot about it, but, you know, I'm sure that there are any number of people, Juan Martín Del Potro, I think lost his grandfather too, that are dealing with personal things, and yet yep. it's like they have to be a Broadway star when they step out on that court and try to put, Everything mm-hmm. that's going on in their personal life on the shelf, put on a happy face, put on the costume, you know, their their performance outfit, and, and get out there and pick their head up and, you know, suck it up, if you will. And it's not easy. So, you know, I, that's something I also wondered about with Nick. And, you know, I was uh, pleased and also respectfully humbled that he was willing to talk about it a little bit you know. Um so I think that's also good good growth with him. It was great to see him go this far. I mean, you know, he went up against Nadal who was playing pretty well. Yeah. Um and obviously <laughs> Rafa couldn't couldn't find answers there. Um went up against Ferrer who was playing extremely good tennis, which I'm also delighted to see because he's had his own struggles and recoveries, I think with an Achilles issue earlier this year. Uh, you know. So I, I think definite strides for Nick and you know he he's a different personality and that's okay
1: I agree and we'll, we'll put the pause button on uh, the champion Grigor Dimitrov for a while Karen because you touched on Test. David Ferrer and um, again reached the semi-finals lost to Nikurios in the semis but um, you know, you and I had a chance to uh, attend a very intimate uh, press conference. It was uh, a Spanish press conference, but uh, three of the English-speaking journals, you, you and I were two of the three, uh, showed up, and we had a chance to ask David uh, questions in English ahead of time, and then, obviously, we had another presser with him after he lost the semi to curios but... One of the things that David Ferrer mentioned was that um he thought he played the best match of, of the year uh in quite some time in defeating in defeating uh Dominic Team, I believe it was three and three, mm-hmm. just crushed him. I saw mm-hmm. the second set of that match and just yeah, he was, was playing six, three, in my six, opinion. Six. Yeah, he was playing in my opinion like Marin Chilich was playing in Cincinnati last year. It was that good it was that pure, it was that flawless, and team had no answers. And unfortunately for uh, Ferrer, although he competed very well against Kyrgios, did not get the job done, but Ferrer shared something with us, and that was each and every match for him right now is a gift. It's a blessing for him to be able to play. That was very refreshing, and, um, you know, I just want you to take the baton right now and just talk a little bit about uh, your, your input from uh, your experience in those David Ferrer pressers.
0: Yeah, you know, I have to admit I haven't been in as many of them over the years. I just haven't caught him. And I was not at all surprised. I mean, I think with David Ferrer, the person that you see on court is the person you get. In the press room Um, and again I'm just saying that instinctually with you know initially and then from what I've seen this time he absolutely as you expressed is grateful to be out doing what he's doing he said I think just a month ago maybe two months ago he was considering thinking about when he was going to announce his retirement Mm -hmm. so you know, again, another one of those, like Juan Martín del Pocho, who went through the same thing. And now I'm back doing things that I didn't think were even going to be possible for me three months ago, six months ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's got to do something amazing for just your, your sort of your soul, your motivation. And then the other thing, I don't know if you were in the other presser, but I asked him something relating to mental toughness. And teaching that or learning that, and was that something that he naturally had? And it's kind of like a little bit, but then he also went into working with other players, and it was really interesting how much he emphasized sitting down and talking to the player, and understanding the player, and understanding that person, and what makes them tick. And mm-hmm. I haven't heard other players talk so much about that, the sort of the psychology of the player more so. Uh, And then, you know, through those conversations, maybe letting them talk through their frustrations of losing a bad match or, you know, talking about those difficult moments and how they're feeling and that sort of thing. And he also has an academy in Valencia. So now I'm actually Mm -hmm. quite curious about it, Uh, but it, it was just a really thoughtful, really insightful response. And, contrary to what you might think his response would be with Debbie, he actually said that was more important than actually being out there hitting the ball.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, it, it, it was a really interesting response and, and not shocking to me, but just, it was very insightful. And very, very well thought out. And um, yeah, I don't know. It, like I said, just was an interesting uh, thing that he revealed there and and really how important it is to understand the person that you're dealing with
1: yeah and I, I really like the interaction uh whether it was between Ferrer and Curios or their coaching staffs where uh again three four years ago Curios played Ferrer first round U.S. Open Curios loses in straight sets and the coaching staffs get together David's coaching staff tells Nick's coaching staff what Nick needs to work on and uh Nick elaborated on that a little bit on on mm-hmm. the court and press and um uh, you know people went wild with that with Nick Kyrgios, uh elaborating on what uh what he needed to do he thought kind of David was crazy saying you know you need to do all these things but uh that that kind of hit Nick Curios between the eyes saying okay uh this is what it's going to take to be this kind of player and um I really appreciated the fact that the coaching staffs can get together. And, and again, it's tennis. It's a gentleman's game. and uh, uh, But we don't always see that all the time. But uh, very mm-hmm. refreshing that Nick Curios paid tribute to David Ferrer and his coaching staff for giving him tips that uh, maybe made him who he is today.
0: And do you remember the number one thing that he remembered from that list?
1: Yep. You do? You've got to suffer. You've got to suffer.
0: Yep. Learn how to suffer on court. <laughs> Yep. So yep. perhaps that's something that Nick is taking to heart now. And, and, you know, I think we we saw a little bit more of that in Cincinnati. So interesting. And tagging along that same line, you know, I, I talked with Grigor after his win and just a little bit about having had an opportunity to train at the Nadal Academy before going to Cincinnati. Yes. And along the same vein of, okay, you know, Grigger is a serious threat to just about any title right now, I would say. And why would you let someone in <laughs> to your place, to your home, to your training facility? But, I mean, it just goes to show you, you know, these players get together. Nick was going to go train with Jack Sock in Kansas after Cincinnati. Um, and I also think I like the fact that it points to conceptually – a lot of these players are friends and it's great to me to see that they're able to keep the definition of we step on court. Yeah. We're we're battling it out. It's, it's you or me. And that's the way it's gotta be. We step off court and yeah, we can, you know, go have dinner together or we can go mm-hmm. practice together or, you know, take the week off break between Cincinnati and the U.S. Open and, yeah, train together but also enjoy each other's company and that sort of thing. So, Because I want to say one thing, and I've seen a lot of it this week with the U.S. Open and social media. I see so much Mm mean-spirited, rude, disrespectful remarks from fans to other fans of players that aren't their favorite players. Right. I want to step back and say, you know, I don't think your player would be proud of what you're doing. And I don't Mm -hmm. think your player would even maybe appreciate the kind of support that you think you're putting out there. And that's the one thing that, you know, I see sometimes, and I've seen quite a lot of it this week, you know, look, we all have different favorites and that's fine. And, we can have different opinions and we can have discussions and things like that. But I just, you know, and, and, uh, I will flip back to WTA, you know, Madison Keys put up a whole, whole campaign about online bullying and social media mm-hmm. and some of the things that have been sent to her. And in fact, Savetta mentioned it in the round table that she's gotten things saying, we're going to cut your legs off after you lost a match, you know, I mean, you know, and with tennis having that, you know, kind of you said, gentlemen's game, a game of courtesy, a game of respect, and I, I just would like to see people try to maybe embody that themselves in supporting their players a little more. So, okay. No, I, I agree.
1: I, I tweeted something out today saying, you know, the the ugliness out there. I mean, I I, I said toward some players, and I guess I can clarify that by saying toward Maria Sharapova and toward Sam Querrey. I, I just can't believe that the the hatred exists out there. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the player on the other side of the net would not have any part of that. So I, I don't know why Twitter's turned into a dumpster uh, with respect to that. Very unfortunate uh, that, that we're seeing that. And, and, you know, fan quote fans of players and uh, are are just uh going off on that. Very, very unfortunate. Um um we're gonna talk a little bit uh, Karen, we talked about Nadal. Uh you spent time at his academy. He did lose to Curios in Cincinnati, but he is alive and well in New York and um my biggest takeaway from Rafael Nadal from covering Cincinnati nine consecutive years is that uh, he is always really giving away the store in terms of answering questions, giving elaborating so much more than other players uh, surprisingly. So in, in how, how he, he talks and and answers questions thoroughly. I noticed a difference this year and um, I'm just wondering, all I can point to Karen is the fact that uh, Carlos Moya is now part of his camp as uh, that was not the case. Uh, You're, You know, the last time he was in Cincinnati, um, you know, I, again, always scratch my head why Rafa went into so much detail in answering questions. It was refreshing when other players were so guarded. But um, that, in my opinion, has changed this time, and that's okay. But uh, just an observation that uh, it's a different Rafa this time.
0: Uh, I really don't know. You know, the the thing that I think about is, look, he's, what, 31 years old now? He's not a Mm -hmm. 17-year-old kid that needs advice on how to speak to the press. Uh, I think maybe some of it has to do with what we are seeing, and I'll go and quote something I saw from Denzel Washington today, which I loved, which was basically if you're reporting and supposedly putting out information if you just want to be first, but you don't care about being accurate mm-hmm. well then what what are you doing and you know I could see operating in a world where well, when I am sharing more, maybe I've realized I've gotten burned, not because mm-hmm. I don't want to share more, and actually Garbini talked about it too that she she came to the round table saying. I don't like being ice in press. That was the exact word she said. I don't want to be iced. But when I'm not and I open up and everything I say gets twisted around, then I'm going to shut down. And you know what? Writers, reporters, journalists, and I'm not saying I'm perfect either, but I think we all should be mindful of the fact that if we want good information and we want good interactions with people, because these are people, and Mm -hmm. they are, in a way, trusting us to represent them, Right. then I do think there is a responsibility to be respectful and to try to be as accurate as possible and not just take the first two sentences of an answer and then write a byline that is a complete or large fabrication and then write a story around it with your own, you know, slant. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know... Maybe people pulling back, and I don't know if that's the case with Lapa, but I I could see it myself. If I were a player, And well, if every time I talk to somebody, what I read about them, reads that they've written is completely fictitious and doesn't at all represent what I said then, A, I don't ever want to talk to that person again. B, I'm going to start watching a little more carefully, you know, who I talk Mm. to, what I say, and how willing I am to be open. You know, and I think that's just a a circumstance of the environment that we're in right now. You know, and, and if you see, if you get a chance, I mean, Jonesville had a clip on it, and it was fabulous, in my opinion. Anyway. So I don't no, know. Good. I, you know. I don't know that it's Moya.
1: Yeah, very well, put, very well put. You know, I'm on tour a couple weeks out of the year. You are a little bit more so, but some people are out, out there 40 weeks a year, and so it's a little bit of a different slide, if you will. But what you just said, I get that all the way, absolutely. And, Taryn, um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, someone who is the Cincinnati champion, his very first Masters 1000 title, but yet he is not alive any longer in the U.S. Open Grigor Dimitrov, very nice run for him, defeated Nick Kyrgios in the final, defeated John Isner in the semifinals. A couple breakers there, and um, Karen Isner admitted in press he hit two of the hardest forehands of his career, and they came back from Grigor Dimitrov. That is saying Mm -hmm. a lot for uh, the Bulgarian to be able to do that, and uh, not only stymie John Isner, but uh, also to take out Nick Kyrgios and win the title.
0: Yeah, Grigor looked very solid throughout the, throughout the tournament. I, I, I'm going to say for me, he even seemed to be playing more aggressively in general than I've seen. Uh, and also was one of those, as I'm sure you saw in press, was very open and very candid. Yep. You know, he talked about losing matches and came out and said, it sucks. I don't sleep for days. I don't eat. (laughs) I mean, he went into some graphic detail about, you know, some of the horrendous losses he's had earlier in the year. In fact, you know, I asked him about the one in Madrid with with Dominic, um, more so from a thoughtful perspective of, you know, learning from those experiences and how that moves you forward. Uh, So, you know, I, I think he's, and I think also somebody asked him about the early comparisons to Federer and you know, that being difficult, too, and is he kind of hitting his stride now? And he said, yeah. So, you know, I think he he's, again, comfortable, confident, self-assured, um, maybe at a, at a level that he hasn't been before. And, and, you know, it also points to the fact of how hard it is week in and week out to deliver a top performance that's going to get you a title. Yep. Because <laughs> – it's not an easy thing you know people like to latch on to the fact that he won something so therefore he must ergo be the fit you know one of the favorites and it's just not that simple when it comes to tennis with the single elimination and schedules and draws and all the different things that come into play different conditions um, etc so uh, you know I think you see Still, certainly in a very strong place, and uh, you know we'll see where he ends up at the end of the year too. I don't know, but I'm wondering with the year-end final in London, who is is in position for those? I'll have to look that up this week.
1: Yeah, query query might just drive uh, himself right in the middle of the pack with uh, what he's doing. Yeah. But uh, you know, that said, what you just mentioned about uh, Grigor and what he's able to do, and and it's so tough to back up. It it just you know looking at what Novak Djokovic did for the last five and a half years, what Rafa and Roger mm-hmm. have done for the last decade. Andy Murray had a monster half year last year, and, boy, it is tough. And, you know, all these – the, the the big four that we just take them for granted. And some mm-hmm. like a Dimitrov wins a Masters 1,000, he's out. Zverev wins in Canada. He's out. He's out. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, crisis mode. And yet, you know, the big four – just kept going and going and going for half a decade, a decade, and uh, just unbelievable, the golden age of tennis that we're in right now. It's shifting a little bit, obviously, because of injuries, but uh, wow, uh, what we've had a chance to experience is just just amazing. And um uh, going to mention a couple of other names, Karen, before we wrap up. And um, Dominic Thiem, uh, you were able to watch all that match when he lost to uh, Ferrer, I was able to see him when he beat Fabio Fognini and Adrian Manorino. Something that I noticed, in fact, um, team mentioned to us in press his pre-tournament presser that he doesn't necessarily like the conditions in Cincinnati. That said he destroyed Fognini in his first match, a little bit more of a tussle against uh, Manorino, a couple breakers. And then finally did not win his match against David Ferrer. Uh, He is alive and well in the U S open, but, um, Something that I noticed about Dominic Team early in his career, I don't know if you want to call it a stress point, he would grit his teeth, uh mm. sort of a a pressure point, if you will. I didn't see that at all against Fognini, granted he only lost five games in that match. That kinda came back into play against Manorino when I was talking with one of the Swiss journalists. Who uh, who knows Manorino's games in and out, and she was saying, "Well, yeah, that that's a bad matchup for Dominic." I'm not surprised that uh, you know he was uh, freaking out a little bit uh, in that match, and you know two breakers to finally win, and it reappeared again. <coughs> excuse me, when he lost to David Ferrer, who was playing very well, and Dominic team, even though he was in great form, as I mentioned. <coughs> Excuse me, looking like Marin Chilich last year when he won the title, Karen, at times uh, against Fognini most of that match, and at times against Manorino. David Ferrer cleaned his clock, and uh, that's saying something for the quality and caliber of play Ferrer played, but also Dominic Team was in very good form when he lost that match against Ferrer. That said, mm-hmm. he is playing against El Patro tomorrow at the U.S. Open. Other guys are not, but um, your takeaway from Dominic Team in Cincinnati?
0: Oh, I mean, even in that Ferrer match, you know, I still say he walked away playing well, not as well as he could have, and I do believe it was more of a mental toughness dealing with the pressure points. Uh, Ferrer was just so solid that night. He wasn't giving him anything he was as he typically does running down every ball um and i also think similar to Alexander Zverev, team may also have a little more of a fatigue factor um, than some of the other players i don't know the match count but just from recollections of seeing draws this year and where he's gotten um you know a lot of miles so I'm super impressed with Dominic Team. He's one of the players that I really enjoy watching. That is coming up among several others, and uh, you know, I, I, if I, I'm not a betting person, but if I had to, I would certainly put money on a, you know, strong success looking ahead as long as he stays healthy. And as you said, Ferrer was in excellent form in Cincinnati. And I've also got to imagine, you know, coming up against him and having seen, you know, what he did against prior players, because I'm sure, you know, he saw some of that, Um, you know, when you step on a court with David, you know, even if you got the upper hand, he's going to run you to death and make you bleed before you get the win.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very, very well put. (laughs) And, um, Darren, before we wrap up, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the uh, Rogers Cup champion, Alexander Zverev. Um, mm-hmm. He won Washington, D.C., won Canada, 12 matches in 14 days, comes into Cincinnati, interestingly enough, plays a doubles match with Lander Pays on a Tuesday that he said was a promise to Pays. Comes up with um, Francis, <laughs> Francis Tiafoe, um, really said early in the second set, his legs were dead. He was only at about 10%. Did lose that match. Tiafoe mm-hmm. played exceptionally well. Really impressed with what uh, the young American brought. But um, Zverev uh, knocked out of Cincy first round and uh, knocked out of the U.S. Open back-to-back. That said, uh, Karen, he's got two Masters 1,000s under his belt.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I just think, again, the scheduling is going to change. Obviously, he's not going to play all these tournaments back-to-back-to-back coming into the U.S. Open We not only have a glimpse, but we've got a very good, clear view of what this guy's going to bring to the table. It was a shame we didn't see more of him in Cincy, but um, that said, his tongue was on the ground, his legs were shot, but um, I I will say, uh, in court 11, uh, that I saw the gavrilova georgie match, people were about 10 deep with, uh, with, with those photo sticks, trying to get even a shot of Alexander Zverev playing doubles. That's how in demand he was. And as you mm-hmm. and I both saw uh, in his pre-tournament presser, he was on top of the world. Great spirits. You asked him a question about his dog, having a, a, a Twitter, a Facebook account. He, he loved that. A uh, little bit different spirits after he lost to Tiafo, But um, I think the ATP Tour is in very good hands with this guy. Uh, challenging. Yeah. Uh, he Look,
0: he's been coming up the ranks steadily for at least the last two years, uh, I asked Rafa at the round table, what advice would he give to players like Dominic and Vera right now? And Rafa's response was, I don't think Alexander needs any advice. (laughs) So, uh, you know, so I think that kind of, kind of says a lot. Uh, He's got a great game. He's got a lot of, he's got a lot of tools and, Options and I think he's continuing to build options. He also acknowledges what a very strong foundation he has, even though maybe he's been asked one too many times about his brother. Uh, You know, but those kinds of things really help when you're a young person traveling the world, dealing with becoming famous, getting these demands, maybe starting to win some things, and maybe even maybe starting to think a little too much about yourself. I mean, he has said it, I think it was Indian Wells. My family keeps my feet on the ground. Like, there's none of that, you know. Um, And those are all important character components that I think are important if you're going to be really successful in any venture, and especially in sports. You know, there's the story of Roger and his father Mm -hmm. leaving him on the tennis court when he was quite young, saying, I'm not enjoying playing with you. Here's some money. You get yourself home, and that mm-hmm. was a light bulb moment for him that made him think twice. And he's talked about it, you know. So I think those things are very important. Um, not every player has that level of support in their in their inner sure. social family network, um, you know. And being on the road constantly when you're a young person. Um, yep. There's a lot of distractions, lots of things that can throw you off balance. You know, he talked about he goes to bed early. He's very strict on his diet and a number of things. And, again, I think a lot of that is, you know, family influence and kind of people keeping the structure there and helping him have that.
1: Yep. And, Karen, one of the biggest stories of the U.S. Open, although he lost today, Dennis Shapovalov came through qualifying. I remember months ago, earlier this year, you were – you know, you you had superlatives when you had a chance to talk to Denis Shapovalov in press. Can you can you uh, paraphrase some of what you had a chance to talk with him about uh, at a previous tournament?
0: Sure. This was uh, the Queen's Club tournament in London. Uh, <clears throat> he the first match I saw he beat Kyle Edmund, and then the second match he played and almost beat Thomas Berdick. It was. In the first presser after Edmund he kind of got asked again about the whole Davis Cup thing, um, mm-hmm. was quite emotional, very sincere, very open about it, uh, very appreciative of the fact that, you know, there were some people that were, in particular, um, the chair, uh, mm-hmm. were kind of compassionate and forgiving with him and supporting him because that was a rough go and I think through social media his family his friends his loved ones took a lot of heat as well uh-huh. because people got kind of crazy over it you know uh but look you know I look at him now and I said what a turnaround for a great year because he he could have let that destroy him oh yeah and I think I think he always had the talent no question He absolutely has the passion because that was one of the biggest things I saw. I I looked at him and I said, this kid is passionate like the Raphael Nadal I saw at 16. Mm. And you can't teach that. That's in the heart, I think. And then lastly, you know, for him to come through a very difficult period that had to be emotionally difficult and psychologically difficult and come out on top of it and learn some very good lessons and be very grounded and very grateful is only paying him dividends now. And so, again, he's, he is in that list of some of the younger folks that I'm just kind of going, wow. Um, and it's fantastic because, you know, <laughs> we need more exciting players coming up, and, and he's definitely on my list as one of them.
1: No, great report. I remember back uh, back in June, um, June, July when you shared that, and it's always been intriguing. And obviously, he's put it all together uh, with his run to the Rogers Cup semifinals and his nice run in the fourth round here at the U.S. Open as well. Denis Shapovalov, obviously, on the radar uh, as you know, we've seen on Twitter too. He's climbed up the betting rankings. Not that we're going to talk about that on the show, but. <laughs> It's oh, been God. it's been brought up again and again. He's third or fourth favorite to win this thing. I'm thinking, wow, you people are credentialed. How <laughs> on earth are you talking about betting? But okay, I'm quoting you. So hmm. there we go. But uh, hmm. yep. And um, uh, also, Maria Sharapova's uh, U.S. Open ended today um, at the hands of uh, Svetasova, who I saw a little bit of from Latvia. Saw a little bit of her in Cincinnati, and then um, obviously Karen. Uh, two births this week. Uh, Serena Williams giving birth and Yelena Ristic, Yelena Djokovic giving birth as well. A lot happening on and off the court at the U.S. Open this week.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm curious between now uh, the Murrays, the Djokovic's, the Federers, you know, are we at some point going to see some of these? Uh, I guess they will be infamous offspring in a way, which could make it tough. <laughs> uh, but, you know, maybe. Some of them will be, and, and the Azarenkins, sorry, there's a few others out there, Mueller's. Yep. Uh, but, you know, uh, and I kind of love this phase of tennis because it's not something that we've seen as much before with active players, you know, having the families and, and these other dimensions to their lives. So, um, yeah, I think it just makes it more fun, more interesting. Um, you know, how many shots have we seen of Federer's kids in the box and, you know, his right. emotional glances over at his family when he's won this year. And, you know, I just think it makes the sport and watching the sport even richer.
1: I agree. And, and, you know, the Novak Djokovic fans out there, I mean, how can you not like the fact that uh, even though he's not competing, he gets to be a family man for, you know, nearly a half a year this year. That's uh, that's golden. Obviously Roger Federer had a chance to enjoy that the majority of last year. And so I, I we've seen what he's been able to do and so it, it's nice to take a time out um, you know maybe that's not exactly what was planned but uh the body has other ideas and uh you have to go with that course so all these guys and gals are making the best of it the you know the very best that they can they have no other way they have no other choice but um not nice that they can be uh family members again uh with respect to their newborns
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, no one wants to be off court and and not competing when you are a competitor at heart, but can't think of a better reason and a better thing to be doing if if you are in that situation. So very happy for both of them. And I think Serena's already saying she's targeting Australia. So, wow. um, Yeah. That's, that's ambitious, but that's Serena, right?
1: There we go. And, um, Karen, before we wrap up obviously we've got um, plenty of action on the US Open slight tomorrow labor day here in the United States but um any other uh any other tennis travel plans that you've got in 2017
0: uh, well <laughs> still New York's not so entirely out of the question but it would be very last minute and I'm starting to look at uh Paris actually um, nice. the atp event there so um we we will see but i'm also uh, starting up tennis travel trips for fans for next year um starting in april through june i guess so that that's mm. taking up a lot of my time now but it's really fun i'm enjoying it and i excited to be doing it
1: nice no that's great and uh before we wrap up tonight, Karen, any last words on either Cincinnati and or New York?
0: Uh, I saw Andre Rublev practicing <clears throat> with Dominic Team in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Uh-huh. And they were hitting the ball so hard and I was embarrassed after the fact because I didn't realize who Andre was and I thought he was a hitting partner and I went up and asked his name. And then he told me, and I went, "Oh geez, yeah, OK, I'm sorry <laughs> That's it again. Um, but look, he's still in there in New York. He's up against Gofan, and uh, you know, he's the youngest one left in the draw. He's 19 years old. Uh, nobody that I can see is really talking about him, and you know, I- I'm not saying it wouldn't be a long shot, but I wouldn't say he couldn't beat Gofan. well. Of course, anyone can beat anybody on a given day, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you yeah, know, but very interesting to see him in in there, and he's not the young player that people were thinking. So there you go once again, you know, but there's always opportunities for people to come through, for people to surprise us, um, to put forth a great effort. And, you know, it, it's a very interesting mixture of what's left because, you know, you've got Federer, you've got Del Poe, you've got Nadal. You've got Rublev, you've got Team, Karina <clears throat> Busta, and Hex yes, Diego Schwartz. So, <clears throat> you know, um, I think it's an interesting mixture. You know, some people say, oh, the draw is depleted. And I'm thinking, no, this is like, to me, this is very yeah. interesting and like a, a pot marinating with a bunch of different flavors in it that we don't normally get to see. But to no, me, that's it's, interesting. It's, it's,
1: very well put, and the same could have said, uh, been said about Cincinnati, and yet uh,
0: yeah.
1: intriguing matchups. And we had a Dimitrov-Kyrgios final uh, and, and some wonderful semifinals as well. So I'm good with that. And, by the way, in Cincy I did see uh, Rublev play Gulbis first-round qualifying, and the Latvian just schooled Andre Rublev two and four. Uh, I was talking with uh, Murder Tunga on Twitter uh, because he was really impressed with Rublev, and he said he was asking me for additional info about that match, saying, "You know, this one's kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's very atypical." <coughs> Excuse me of what Rublev has done all summer long. What 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 happened here? And so I elaborated a little bit. And um, as you mentioned, you saw him hitting with team, and so bad result. Uh, Ernest Golvis was in very good form, hitting the ball very hard, serving off the charts and uh, kind of blew Rublev off the court before he himself lost to Yuzhny in the next round. But, um, yeah, a youngster, Rublev, 19 years old, playing a veteran like Gulbis. I'm going to chalk that up to a bad matchup, but um, Andre Rublev, again, alive and well in the U.S. Open. So many of the other names that we've talked about so far are not. So um, looking forward to him and his ability to to be able to compete going forward tomorrow and onward and Karen before we wrap up anything else from either New York or Cincy uh
0: no I think we're great for the night <laughs> but, but okay outstanding and
1: um, right and uh we're into Labor Day and the East Coast time already and so on behalf of Karen Health this is Pete Zebron saying good night we'll catch you next week on Replay the Point good night <laughs>